congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's map time again. You remember that I used the analogy of the scripture being this vast landscape that we can explore on our own, but we can take the, the map that other explorers have put together, our fathers in the faith, as they've traveled the length and the breadth of this land, and as they've uh, recorded interesting features and, 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 and the general idea and uh, the, the, the catechism then gives us the big picture and helps us to see large connecting lines throughout the scriptures. And so we, we pull out our maps again this afternoon and we're dealing in Lord's Day 26 and in this general area of Lord's Day 25, 26, 27, etc. We're dealing with a part of the map where there's a section which is blown up. You, you, you know that you, you have a map. People nowadays don't use paper maps so much, but when people used to use paper maps, then sometimes you would have a little section which was a, a detailed section which would be blown up so you could see more detail. That's what's happening in this area of the catechism. The catechism kind of stops almost and goes very, very slowly through a lot of details about the sacraments and about baptism and about the Lord's Supper. And I think many of us, when we get to this section of the Catechism, we think, well, not again. Why can't we just deal with the baptism in one Lord's Day? Why, why does the Catechism go on and on about this? Well, why do maps have blown up sections? Because there's something important there. And the reason the Catechism goes into detail in this section is because preaching and sacraments are vital. They're very, very important. And our fathers in the faith have found that a lot of people get lost in the thickets. They end up getting confused. They end up going the wrong way and, and making mistakes on this issue. So the Catechism takes the time to deal with this in detail. Preaching and sacraments work and strengthen faith. Faith is what connects us to Christ. So this is vitally important that we get it right. Now, I was trying to think of an example, an analogy, a metaphor to help us visualize this. And you know, of course, that every metaphor breaks down sooner or later, every analogy. But let's hope this one helps somewhat. If you have a great big ravine or chasm and you need to get across to the other side, you can build a bridge. And in a way, we can see Faith as something which connects us to the other side, to, to Christ. It's, it's the entirety of the bridge. And then the preaching and sacraments, the preaching would be the, the deck of the bridge, and the sacraments would be those two great big massive cables. Let's say it's a suspension bridge. Okay, so if you're engineering this thing, you don't just say, well, the important thing is that you get to the other side. No, you want to make sure it's right. And you know, you say, well, as long as the, the bridge deck is lined up, who cares about, you know, the cables, where they begin and where they end? I, I don't have to, you don't have to be an engineer to know that you want those cables designed precisely and put in exactly the right spot in the right way. So all three things work together. Well, if that, hopefully that helps somewhat. The point is this, is that preaching and sacraments are vital they're important, and it's important that we get them right because they have to do with faith which connects us to Christ 
And being connected to Christ is life, and not being connected to Christ is death. So it's really, literally, a situation of life and death. Now, the Catechism is going into details on some doctrine, on some theology, but it doesn't stop being the Catechism. Look at the question. How does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you? The Catechism always wants to get down to real life. What does this have to do with me? How does it change my life? What does it mean for me? The Catechism is not a book of theology, a dogmatics textbook, but it wants to bring the teaching of Scripture close to us and show us that it actually means something important for our lives. It's very practical. And the answer in answer number 69 starts off this way. Well, Christ instituted it. And if Christ instituted it, that means that it's not just some idea that we had. Baptism is not something that the church said, you know what, it would be really neat to do something like this. That's a problem when the church starts doing that. It was a problem at the time of the Reformation and before, in the centuries before. It's a problem today when the church says, well, wouldn't it be neat to do this or to do that to kind of show and signify the meaning of the gospel? We don't want to go there. We are content with what our master has commanded us to do. He's commanded us as church to preach and to administer the sacraments, two of them. And you remember from this morning that when God says something, it's a good idea to listen. Because otherwise things can go very, very wrong. So Christ instituted an outward washing. This morning there was water there. And it's just normal water. When a little kid comes into the house from playing in the fields in the springtime and they're covered in mud, mom doesn't want them to go into the living room and start climbing over the furniture. She says, take those muddy things off, get into the bath. We're going to clean this, this filth off. And that's the picture of baptism. It's not a very flattering picture. God is saying to us, you're filthy, and you need to be cleaned. As surely, says the Catechism, as water washes away dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul. This as surely and so certainly language is the language of a, a, a picture. God says something, and then God shows something. And this saying and showing go together. We, we, we remember that from Lord's Day 25. The, the, the faith is worked by the preaching, strengthened by the sacraments. That's what's happening. So, so what does God say? And then what does God show? Well, this is what he says. He says, you are dirty, you are impure, you are filthy. And that is not just a temporary situation, that's who you are. And it's not just on the outside either, but it comes from the very center and core of your being. It defines who you are. 
And David, after he goes and murders someone, uh, uh, after having committed adultery and then murdering someone, David is confronted by this truth and confesses it to God in, in Psalm 51. We sang some of the stanzas of Psalm 51 this morning. And David, he says, I, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 51. Behold, behold I, was, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What's David saying? He's saying, I didn't become a sinner when I went and committed adultery and murdered someone. I didn't become a sinner when I committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her, her husband Uriah. I was a sinner. I sinned because I am a sinner and I have been a sinner ever since I started to exist. Well, that's quite the confession. But it's an important one to make. Doing a sin doesn't make you a sinner. It's because you are a sinner that you do the sin. And David understands that. He understands that the problem is not just that he's done something and now that something has to be undone. He understands that he is something and that is that he is needs to be changed radically. He cries out to God. He says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. I need you to work inside me. There's something in my soul that's wrong and twisted. And it makes me dirty in your sight. And so he cries out, Lord, I... This fount of filth, is I've had it since I was conceived and born, and, it, and it, it makes my entire life and person dirty. And he cries out to God in verse 2 of the psalm, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And the language here is a language of just, the way he puts it is, is, is like this, just wash and wash and wash and scrub and scrub and cleanse and cleanse and don't stop till it's all gone. The guilt, the impurity, the filth of our souls needs to be washed away, but how can it be washed away? In the Old Testament, before the priests went into God's presence, they had to wash themselves. There were cleansing rituals. Before Aaron and his sons were ordained as priests, there was this major washing ceremony as well. But then every time they went into the tabernacle, into the holy place, they had to wash. If you open your Bible to Exodus chapter 30, verse 20, now notice how important this washing was. This wasn't just some little ritual that you had to do and oh well if you forgot it it's not too bad Exodus chapter 30 verse 20 in verse 17 he says you, sh you should make a basin of bronze for washing put it between the tent of meeting and the altar you should put water in it with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet when they go verse 20 when they go into the tent of meeting when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. 
They shall wash their hands and their feet, verse 21, so that they may not die. He repeats himself. This may be important. It's life or death. God will not have the filthy, the impure, come into his holy presence. And so the Old Testament is one long record and narration of an entire system of trying to scrub away sin. There's all the washings and all the sacrifices. And and there's washing and washing and washing, but it never erased the stain on the human soul. And there are the altar, and there are the sacrifices of blood to enter into God's presence. And there are rivers and rivers of blood in the Old Testament. But the sin never gets dealt with definitively. You always have to come back and do another sacrifice. You always have to come back and do another washing. But God promises that it's not going to be like that forever. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 verse 24. He says, Ezekiel 36 verse 24. He says to them, verse 22 he says not for your sake O house of Israel that I'm about to act but for the sake of my holy name which you've profaned so in other words don't think you deserve this you haven't earned this I'm doing it because I'm good I'm doing it because I'm gracious I'm doing it because I'm holy and faithful and righteous and then in verse 24 I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart that's the heart David is crying for and a new spirit I will put within you And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will put a new heart and a new spirit in you. That's the promise. Well, when did he keep that promise? Well, Christ tells us in the gospel, and the Lord Jesus Christ showed us this morning in holy baptism. He tells us, it is done. My blood and my spirit Wash away the impurity of your soul. It is taken care of. And that's why we as believers, as church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we confess one baptism for the remission of sins. One. Because to keep baptizing, as some are apt to do, as some like to do, is actually to deny that the Lord Jesus Christ really paid for sin on the cross and really washed away our sin with his precious blood. 
That's the whole letter of the apostle to the Hebrews. Deals with that. The Old Testament was over and over and over and over, but the Lord Jesus came and he did it. Once and for all. Well, that's what it means. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the picture of the gospel in the sacrament. The blood and spirit of Christ wash away the impurity of my soul. And I I know that I need that very badly. And then the catechism continues, well, what does it actually mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? And then it goes into a little bit more detail. Perhaps you'll notice that the first little paragraph in answer 70 is basically dealing with justification and the second with sanctification. Justification and sanctification go together like the heat and the light of the sun. To be washed with Christ's blood means to receive forgiveness of sins from God through grace. Because of Christ's blood. Well, I don't think we need a lot of teaching on justification because it's something which is very dear to us as Reformed people. God, through grace, because of Christ, he declares us perfectly righteous, perfectly just. The old hymn by Horatius Bonar says this, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. That's what it is. That's what baptism pitches to us. That we are washed. We are washed. The apostle says, He lists a whole bunch of very, very foul sins. And he says, such were some of you, but you were washed. We are a washed congregation. We are cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. And when we come into God's presence with all of our sins and weaknesses and and mess-ups of the past week, when we come before the Lord, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, He sees us as a holy bride in whom there is no spot or wrinkle. And he sees you, believer. He sees you as someone who is so pure and so righteous and so holy and clean as to be like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He sees you as righteous as Christ is. That's what baptism is picturing. Justification. But there's another part to it. To be washed, the second paragraph, to be washed with his spirit means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. You see, what's the use of mopping the floor if the tap is still on? If there is this fount, this fountain, of foulness, which is just 
flowing, overflowing into a certain area. There's no sense cleaning the foulness away all the time without dealing with the source, is there? And so God doesn't grant bare forgiveness. That's not the way God works. He doesn't say, okay, you've sinned up to now, I'll I'll wash away all those sins, and then just come back tomorrow, and then we'll do it all again. That's not how he works. God deals with the root of the problem. And the root of the problem ever since the fall is our sinful heart. The heart, says Jeremiah, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And Moses tells us in Genesis 6 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the diagnosis of God about the state of sinful man. Not some intentions of the heart, not most of them, but every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Not kind of evil or a little bit evil, but only evil continually. Not sometimes, not a lot of times, but all the time. That's who we are outside of Christ. And it's this mess, this filthy, stinking mess, which is the sinful, rebellious human heart. Nothing is attractive in who we are by nature. Into that foul mess, the Spirit of God comes and he does an amazing miracle. He, he takes out that rotten and rotting heart and he gives us a new one. What does the apostle say? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New things start happening. Good things, less selfishness, more love, less filth, more holiness. Don't ever fall for the lie that because you are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that you can just live however you want. It doesn't really matter. It's not true. To be washed with Christ's blood comes together with being washed by his spirit. Well, the catechism questioner finishes off our Lord's end, question 71. He says, well, okay, you're saying that Christ connects this visible sign of baptism. That's a visible sign and seal. He connects it to a spiritual reality. There's a a close connection between the, the sign and the thing signified. That's what you're saying. Well, tell me where. Where did you get this from? Did you get it from the Bible? Where has Christ promised this? And the Catechism replies and goes to the Great Commission, where Jesus told the church, told the apostles, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So see here, the Lord Jesus is putting faith, which is the reality, and baptism, the sign. He says when those two are together, that equals salvation. There's a close connection. And in fact, the Bible often uses language which leaves us a little bit ill at ease sometimes. 
The Bible often uses very strong language when it deals with the sacraments. The Bible often uses what we can call sacramental language. And we read uh, in Titus, for instance, Titus chapter 3, where the apostle says in verse 5, he saved us, and then there are a bunch of other subordinate clauses, but if you jump to the end, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That sounds kind of Roman Catholic, doesn't it? It sounds like, it sounds like that the actual baptism is regenerating people and, and has a certain power in it. Regeneration means being born again. Regeneration means new life. And the way that Paul speaks to Titus, it sounds like that at the moment of baptism, new life is worked by that water. It's the washing of regeneration. And then Acts 22, verse 16. This is Paul again, but this time it's Ananias speaking to him. And, and he says, now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Be baptized and wash away your sins. It sounds like the water is doing the, the washing away of the sins. Notice what Ananias says. Rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. The name which is the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. The name that in Romans chapter 10 we learn is the name we need to believe in. The name we need to confess with our lips. It's an act of faith to call on the name. And a sacrament without faith is just an outward empty sign. We can attribute too much power to the sacrament as if the sacrament's actually doing the work and has the magic power in it. And we can react the other way and say, well, whatever, it's just a sign. It doesn't mean anything. The real thing is Jesus. The real thing is the blood of Christ. The water, the Lord's Supper, it's not that important. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. And we can use the example of a wedding ring. A wedding ring is just a piece of metal. A wedding ring by itself doesn't create a marriage. If you're single, you can't just buy a ring and go walking around town and find someone and put it on their finger and you're, mag you're magically married. It doesn't work that way. A ring doesn't make a wedding. And yet, it does. I don't know how you say it here in Canada, but I think in some weddings I've heard this. With this ring... I, the wed. The ring says something. It means something. It says, I am a married man, or I am a married woman. It says to other people, I belong to someone. It's just a piece of metal, but yet something profound is signified by this outward sign. And if somebody would say, you know, it's just a piece of metal then how would they feel if they came home one day and their spouse took off the ring and threw it down the floor and stomped and spat on it? Would they say, ah, it's just a piece of metal? Or would that mean that there's something terribly wrong with the marriage? A ring means something. And that's what the Bible does with the sacraments. 
powerful sacramental language connects the outward sign to the thing signified in a very close way. And our baptism, the water of baptism doesn't do anything in itself. But it's such a beautiful and clear picture of what Christ's blood does to us that we carry the reality and the power of our baptism with us throughout our whole life. Baptism isn't just something that happened to our little brother early this morning. But it's something that we carry with us every day of our lives. Every day. It's right here on your forehead. I am baptized. It is real. It is true. I am clean. I am forgiven. I am pure. I am holy. I am righteous in Christ, by Christ, for Christ. And when the devil comes and, and takes your sins and rubs them in your face and says, you're useless. What a rotten Christian you are. Look at all the things you said wrong last week. Look how you're not doing this and how you are doing that. There's no way that you're acceptable to God. Then you say, devil, get behind me. I am baptized. I got the ring. I'm married. I'm married to Christ. I belong to him. And nothing you say can change that devil. But then we also need to, to have recourse to our baptism when the devil comes and tries to seduce us to sin. You know what Luther used to say when the devil was tempting him to do bad things? Luther would say, I am a baptized man. Now this devil, get out of here. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has cleansed me from all my sin. You think I'm going to jump right back into that filth? No way. I am a baptized man. I am a baptized woman. I am a baptized child. No more guilt. No more slavery to sin. I have new life. I have a clean conscience. And I can live every day in the reality of my baptism. Very, very strong, powerful picture that we have in the sacraments. And so the Bible uses strong, powerful, sacramental language. Kind of like a guy who's traveling... Maybe he's in the army or he's got some kind of work where he has to be away for a long time. So he takes a, a photo of his wife along. And he's out there far away and somebody says, oh, what's that? He says, well, th th this is my wife, he says. This is my wife. He pulls out the picture. He says, this is my wife. Now, unless you've got a really, really irritating uh, roommate or so, nobody's going to say, no, it's not your wife. It, it's a piece of paper with a picture on it. Nobody's going to say that. They all know what you mean. That's sacramental language. This is my wife. And there's no problem with saying that. It's totally normal. You know what would not be normal? Is if that man would then begin to substitute his wife for this picture. And he would show up at parties when he's back home. And they're like, oh, didn't you bring your wife along? Oh, yeah, she's right here. They said, well, you've you got a problem. There's something wrong with you. That's, where's your wife? That's the picture. And, and so Christians can do that with the sacraments too. We can say, this is my cleansing. This is my washing of regeneration. It's totally legitimate sacramental language. But don't get it confused with the reality. 
The reality is Jesus. Remember, sacraments are there to strengthen our faith. And our faith is not in some water. Our faith is in Christ. Our faith is in His person and His work and His sacrifice. And so we don't trust in the water. We don't glory in our baptism or the water or the minister or the church. But we give glory to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We give glory to the one who loved us. We give glory to the one who washed us from all sin and stain. So let's do that in hymn number seven. Amen.